Hi, hello, and welcome to Oh Boy, the podcast presented by Man Repeller. I'm your host, Jay Bume, and I am super excited to say that today's guest is the artist Lori Simmons. Lori was on my dream list of people to talk with, and I'm so excited that we were able to make this happen. For those who don't know, Lori Simmons is an artist, photographer, and filmmaker. She also happens to be the mother of one Lena Dunham. Every time I see her work, it gives me such a charge. It's, it's always exciting, and her work uh, means a lot to me. This conversation is a long one, so buckle up. Also, I'd like to say that today's podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. The easiest way to create a blog or a website, use the offer code OBOY at checkout for 10% off your first purchase. Okay, let's get into it. Um, you know, I was thinking a lot about about the interview, and, uh, and one of the things that I love about your work is that um, all the places it's taken me to, mm-hmm. not so much even just like with, you know, experiencing the work, but like actually going to view the work. Oh, <laughs> So, you know, like I remember a couple years ago, my friend took me to this really like fancy gallery on the Upper East Side to see the music of regret. Mm. And I remember like walking in, I was like, are, are we allowed to be here? Yeah, I know. You know? It's very that way. And I, I, but I loved it. It was so, it was so, it was like such a treat. I was like, I felt like we were doing something wrong by being there yeah. and like experiencing that. Work I like it I, much better when it's in a regular theater. Yeah. Popcorn but, and- but then, but then also I'm like walking down the Bowery and it's like, oh, here's your work yeah. like uh, at Salon 94 and stuff. And you it's know? true on, on websites. It's, it's true on the net too it can turn up on a porn site or a very um high level museum site <laughs> has is your work has turned up on porn sites because of the love dolls really yeah the, the japanese sex yeah. dolls end up they do end up on fetish and porn sites is that something that's brought to your attention no because i have a google alert <laughs> oh you have a google yeah. alert oh and that works for porn sites that's good yeah, to I know mean, I, yeah yeah <laughs> i mean maybe not xxxxx i don't know but i've gotten mm-hmm. to some pretty strange places and Porn sites are kind of, they, they can disguise themselves yeah. really well, too. Yeah. Well, it just got me thinking, too, about the experience around seeing art. Too, it's not even just, like, experiencing the work, but it's also just the experience of, of um, you know, going to it. I, I think that's something that I don't think people talk about enough um, when we talk about going to see work and stuff and going to see experience. Well, I think that, and this includes museums, even though they have free days and stuff, but I think that the art world has always functioned with a level of intimidation like completely and it's one thing that I don't like about it I resent that about it that that uh people come into the gallery and they wonder well am I walking in the right direction yeah they're terrified of talking to the gallerina yes and they think they're going to do something wrong right um it's like you feel like they don't want you there kind of thing yes and it's you know the art world has kind of turned itself into that and into a joke of itself Mm -hmm. Um, and there are, you know, the art world is this whole kind of food chain that has a bottom end and a top end. And there's really wonderful, accessible stuff that always goes on at the bottom end. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, I was a young artist and for a really long time. So I like to think about that. But um, it's interesting to think about the art world as this construct that makes people like you. Like, I know the gallery you're talking about. Yeah, It's not the gallery that represented me. It just was some little gallery that asked if they could show the work. Right. Uh, so for me, the idea, t- to me, it was a very s- small Upper East Side kind of like, eh, unintimidating place. But it's interesting to imagine you going in there and thinking, whoa. Yeah, I mean, I'm dressed like this, you know what I mean? It's like I'm yeah. not the normal person walking in there. But you are because yeah. <laughs> people who want to see art, I mean, a lot of artists, young artists want to see art. Yeah. 
So they have to go where it is and you have to be able to walk in and, um, but I remember going into a gallery in Soho because I lived across the street. This was years ago and I ran out of my studio and there was a Hungarian photography show and I wanted to buy one. Mm -hmm. And I asked the person behind the desk for a price list and she said, uh, we, we only give price lists to collectors. And I thought, baby, you just lost a sale (laughs) and I've never been back Yeah, and I will never speak to the art dealer. It wasn't her. But I think that people are really naive to judge any sort of, I mean, especially this was sort of pre-Silicon Valley and pre, you know, kind of pre, um, massive internet and all of the fortunes that, that come along with that. And those, those people are pretty relaxed looking. So yeah. if they walk into your gallery, you don't want to. Yeah, the ties maybe changed a little yes, bit. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, so where did you grow up? I grew up on Long Island. Okay, where in Long Island? Great Neck. Okay, yeah, I know Great Neck. Everybody does. I went to a sleepaway camp with some kids from Great Neck. Of course you yeah. did. <laughs> I had a crush on a girl from Great Neck. She was the first person to dye my hair green. Of course She's she was. Very, <laughs> she was cool. <laughs> Well, it wasn't cool. I mean, it was a really um, intense post-World War II yeah. um, kind of snobby Jewish upper middle class suburb. And I I had a very confused time trying to grow into the identity of being an artist there. Right. Um, but I couldn't wait to leave. I just could not wait to leave. Well, what were your parents doing there? How did they end up there? Well, my father, um, my parents were both first generation American. Mm-hmm. And my father grew up in Brooklyn, okay. Brownsville, Flatbush, and was in World War II. Yep. Um, he was a dentist in World War II, and then he uh, moved to Great Neck, married my mother, who was from the Five Towns, so she was sort of like a she-she, mm-hmm. you know, more upper-class, upper-middle-class Jewish yeah. girl. And they moved to the North Shore, bought a house in Great Neck right after the war, and I grew up there, and Great Neck was the perfect perfect pristine just like bucolic bucolic pleasantville kind of everything philip roth ever yeah you know tried to embrace in his writing and i think that still to this day my work has some connection to my having grown up there yeah of course it's that kind of thing where you're like you know because i experienced the same thing too i was like i couldn't wait to get out i grew up in new jersey then as then i look back on my work i was like oh everything i do as like has some of that in it like, you can't, like, escape it. You can't run away from it. It's, it's just it's so in there. screwed up that those first 17 years <laughs> yeah. have such a profound effect on the entire uh, scope of I the, know. <laughs> especially if you're making things. It's just like, please, it's time for you to leave my brain. Yeah. Those first 17 years. Well, what's the thing, what's the thing that stands out to you the most about growing up in, in Great Neck at that time period? Um, the, the, the sheer surface beauty of mm-hmm. it how perfect everything had to be, how my sisters and I had to wear uh, matching outfits and all the rooms were decorated in a color-coordinated way. But um, being a sensitive kid and being a perceptive kid Mm -hmm. and not getting any respect for that at all Mm -hmm. or acknowledgement of that, I always knew that there was something darker. I felt something darker brewing below the surface. And it was there, right? Yeah, I felt like... It can't be right that appearances mean everything. It just doesn't. It seemed to me like there was more going on than people were acknowledging. I mean, mm-hmm. it's very, it's very hard to put the feelings you had as a young child in, into words now as an adult. But it was like it was almost like this little kid having a 
there's trouble in paradise feeling. Yeah. But also at the same time feeling, having this sense um, that I was living in a Kodak moment, that it almost knowing that it would never be this beautiful again. Mm. Is it like, uh, do you remember the opening scene from Blue Velvet, you know, where it's that? Every artist, every artist knows that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> every artist That's is, just, yeah. yeah, it's just. Like he gets it in that, like that shot. It just says it. It's so perfect. And then, you know, one of my students, um, former students, who's a very acknowledged and successful photographer now, Gregory Crudson. Oh, okay. Made, you know, years of work based on the first scene of (laughs) Blue Velvet. That's true. That's true. (laughs) Um, So so while you were kind of, you had that in your mind, you know, how were you spending your childhood? What were you doing? Just doing kid things, you know, like... It's it's funny. Yesterday it was really warm, and I was walking down the street, and I had a vivid memory of getting out of a swimming pool, um, being blue with cold because you'd stayed in the pool too long, and then the feeling of eating, you know, an ice pop from the Good Humor Man. Yeah, yeah. Just those feelings are still so profound. You know, like the color of the ice pop, the color of the pool, mm-hmm. the color of your bathing cap. You know, yeah, just yeah. they were. Um, you know, my and my parents tried to make everything sort of perfect for us in every way, um, and it did all look okay. But it, you know, it always felt kind of wobbly. Mm-hmm. You know, it always felt kind of. Well, I mean, so like, yeah, what was it kind of like? You know, were you affected by what was going on around you culturally as you kind of you know grew into your teenage years? Um, I was affected by the social scene yes. and my peers that were yeah. really close in. And I was, that became my world. Mm-hmm. And of course my world was really rocked because, you know, I was in high school when the, when the Beatles happened. Right. I'd grad, I just graduated high school when Woodstock happened. Mm-hmm. So there was this huge, you know, I was in the middle of that upheaval. Right. Right in the middle of it. Um, so, now I, now I'm thinking about that. I can't remember what you asked. <laughs> well, but. no, I was. That's what I was asking about. That I was like, you know, like how how did that affect you? You know, just being around all of that kind of like that cultural explosion, right? Like because it's it was like the post World War II, just kind of like like you said, like you felt it just started collapsing everything. In it a way. started collapsing. I think that um, I. I think that everyone I know that felt deeply into that was really ready for that Mm -hmm. and of course you know you probably know your your 60s 70s 80s history as well as as well as I do because there's so much (laughs) written about it but it's almost like it was this beautiful first this beautiful psychedelic experience that also went completely dark right I mean I guess everybody says Altamont was Altamont (laughs) okay that was the end right but uh you know it was interesting for me because um the town I grew up in had people like my father, who had been, uh, who was so grateful to the United States for providing a home for him. Right. And then also, you know, my town was full of communists and people that were in SNCC and were involved with the NAACP and people that had much different books in their house than we did, mm. you know. So it was a sort of, you know, my town would, you know, spend everyone from a, a person like my father, who was very patriotic, to these absolute, you know, rabid, they would have been called commies, who were mm. super intellectual. But I know that my own family was really disappointed in my new belief system, because my father would say, 
this country provided a home for us. Right. He was very emotional about that. And you know, the, the really interesting thing is that I'm really emotional about it now because this country did provide a home for my grandparents and both sets of grandparents and the grandparents of most of the people I grew up with mm -hmm. and the parents of most of the people yeah. I grew up with. And now this country is not willing to provide a home for people. Right. Uh, so I'm interestingly, interestingly much more sympathetic to where my father was then about having gratitude about this country being here because it's so fucked now in terms of... I know. Yeah. Let's not no. go there. <laughs> I was just going there in my head. Yeah, Sorry. let's not. <laughs> well, <laughs> was there a moment that... Um, did you always know that you, you wanted to be an artist? Yeah. You that, did. That's the family joke is that, you know, I got dropped off at kindergarten the first day of school. We had to introduce ourselves. And I said, I'm Laurie Simmons and I'm an artist. So it was really... <laughs> where did that come from? My like, mother. Where, yeah. I like to draw. Yeah. So they, they gave me, they gave me the identity, which I... And they encouraged it? By giving me crayons yeah. and easels okay, and yeah, letting yeah. me go to art school, which yeah. was a big struggle. But um, it was a very convenient um, identity for them to give me because it allowed them to excuse every weird thing that I ever did. Right. They'd say, well, Lori's an artist. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it, it gave them uh, an explanation for my behavior. Yeah. And it was just something that you always kind of just had inside that you knew you, yeah. you needed to do. Well, the part that I find really interesting is that I didn't listen to anything else that my, none of my parents' suggestions were suggestions that I took about how to be or what to be or what to do. Were they trying to like, you know, pursue, like push you into something that was like more solid? Mainstream? Or, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that the whole thing about being, was an, being an artist is that they thought that I would be an art teacher and marry someone a professional right and teach and then when I had children maybe show things at a you know local art shows so so they had no idea they had no idea yeah that what being an artist was or what that meant they just thought that for a woman liking to draw and paint was kind of nice right kind of sweet wow so and then so like in in your mind did you kind of have a plan of what you wanted to do? You're like I'm gonna get out of this town. That was my plan. I'm gonna go to art school. Yeah. <laughs> that was my plan. Yeah. I want to get out of this town. Yeah. And I I had no idea what living an artist's life meant, but you just knew that you're like I got to do this. Yeah. But also like I think at that time you know you know being an artist wasn't a profession that many people like really knew about or like aspired to. I feel like now people see it as more of this thing like oh you get you know like people kind of. Um, People see certain things about, and they 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 feel attracted to certain things about, not knowing like the other side of it. You know what I mean? Well, they <laughs> like, see that they can potentially make a living, which wasn't. I think that as soon as there's, I mean, remember when being a chef was a dorky, weird thing yeah, to be, yeah, and yeah, now yeah. the chef is the is the romantic interest in yeah. every rom com, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think that being an artist, no one understood what it was. But as soon as people got wind of the fact that there was that there were a few people making money from being an artist became an attractive, yeah. air quote, profession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, look, I mean, do you want to spend all day beating yourself up in your head? Like, yeah. come on in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you exactly. <laughs> so, so what was your experience like at art school at that time? So it was like late 60s, early 70s? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was it like? 
you know, like art school, like yeah. lots of weird people, like people smoking pot, trying to get to England to buy clothes from, you know, Carnaby Street. Yeah, yeah. Trying to go to Afghanistan in a car and realizing that's a bad idea. <laughs> where where were you going to school? Philadelphia. Oh, okay, Tyler cool. School of Art. Awesome. And then um, the third year, all of us that could afford it, that could figure it out, went to school in Rome. Oh, and that wow. was really amazing. Wow. Tyler had a school there, but... So it was fine. It was nice. I mean, the thing about art school, at least then, is you get to be with a whole bunch of people that are like you in mm. a certain way. Yeah, that's, that, that's I, you know, I went to film school. Where'd the, you go? Uh, Penn State. Mm-hmm. So I was also in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the thing is, like, I, you know, I love that, like, you know, art school, and I maybe art school is the same, but film school is, like, is a great place to, like, make mistakes mm-hmm. and learn from other people's mistakes. Right. You know, when the stakes aren't that high. You know, it's an okay space to exactly. kind of figure it out. Exactly. You know, that's why I think it's the most important thing. It is. It. And also you learn how to talk the talk. I mm-hmm. mean, it's really, I think it's important to learn how to talk about your work. Not that that necessarily happens in art school, but right. you need to be able to have developed some kind of language mm-hmm. to be able to speak. And I think that thing about making mistakes when the stakes aren't high, although it, I had, um, I don't know if he was a freshman or a sophomore a teacher who told me to get out of art and everybody lots of people have that experience where somebody tells them yeah you're in the wrong place yeah um and those things are really those are really profound experiences like who cares now mm-hmm. some some dude some second-rate artist told me i didn't belong in <laughs> art school but right at the time it just it, it was so devastating and you know you get in bed and you are paralyzed for a little while and then you think nope Screw him. Right, but th- but then again, that also kind of gives you the ammo because there's going to be much there's much more times throughout your career where that kind of stuff happens. Absolutely. So it's like you know if you can make it through that or you know what I mean, you need to start being able to like develop the ability to overcome those self doubts or any doubts that creep in from from anywhere else. You know. So true, and I think the only thing that might separate me from some people I went to art school with or met along the way who were no longer artists, it it could be as simple as resilience. I know. I think about that all the time. You know, like, I know so many people that I've known, like, throughout my life, you know, up until this point, like, who I just was was like, you know, you you got it. Like, people that are musicians, artists, you know, every, you know, kind of, you know, expression uh, or discipline, I guess. And, yeah, it's just there's some people. Where are just, they? Yeah. What happened? And I just remember, I remember kids in high school, I'd be like, Dude, this short film you made, like what? Like how come you're not still doing it, you know? Because it's fucking tough. Because somebody said, yeah. get out of filmmaking. And they're like, get okay. Out of, yeah, yeah, okay, I can't take it. And yeah. the funny thing about resilience is that if you have it, you're not really aware that you have it. It's not like you go around saying, I'm a very resilient <laughs> person. It's more like... You feel really terrible, and then right. somehow you pick yourself up again. You take the shots, and you just keep going. And you keep going, yeah. but it's not like you're te- you're not the narrative you have with yourself is not, I am a very resilient person. Right. The narrative is more like I don't want to stop making my work. I feel really bad, but I feel like making something. You yeah. Know? No, it's a completely, completely. When when you're getting ready to leave, did you have a plan in mind of what you wanted to do? No, you mean when I left art school? When you left school, yeah. No, so I went and lived on a commune upstate. That was kind of interesting. Oh, where upstate? Roscoe, New York. Oh, I know Roscoe, New York. That's where I went to sleepaway camp. Oh, really? What camp? Uh, It was called Timberlake West. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Right near the Roscoe Diner. Yes, of course. The famous Roscoe Diner. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't, it was just really a batch of um, 
disillusioned uh, people that had dropped out of Cornell. Yeah. That was like the kind of, if I could still say it right, tune in, turn on, drop out, that yeah. period of oh, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can still say it. So a bunch of people lived together, but it was really fun mm-hmm. and it was really part of How could that not this, be? It was so fun. It's beautiful up there. And it was part of this great period of arrested development where I just could avoid, I, I tried to avoid growing up yeah. for as long as I could because I had no tools whatsoever. Yeah. Did you? No. Did your parents teach you how to no. use a checkbook or? No. I still like, I honestly, I don't even know what's in my bank account right now. That's bad. <laughs> we need to talk after the podcast. Have, like, I don't even, like, I just, I can't look at it. I can't do any of that stuff. You know, it's like, I'm that kind of person where like, you know, I'll just put, like if a bill comes or something, I just, I'll put it in a shoebox or something. Yeah. Like, I'll, like my someday to deal with pile. Yeah. It's well, terrible. Yeah. A lot of us are like that for a really long time. I know. I don't want to be like that, but I just like my brain just turns to How mush. How old are you? Uh, 33. Um, your free pass is, <laughs> is about to expire. <laughs> I'm out of time. Yeah. Ah, oh, shit. <laughs> um, so, so while you were there were you were you you know when you left school and you were living there were you were you making work i was making kind of funky little sweet crafty objects trying to figure out what to do mm-hmm. and i that's where i started to use a camera and set up a dark room but i really felt like i need to get to a city is the city new york is the city chicago is the city you know i think that um a lot of kids today who graduate school are trying to figure out where they're supposed to go. Right. Am I supposed to go to L.A.? Am I supposed right. to be in New York? But I knew that I needed to be in a city, and I knew that I needed to be around artists. So I did get myself, you know, I traveled around Europe a lot, and then um, in a car. Um, what was that like? Kind of, in hindsight, kind of scary. But oh, really? Yeah. I mean, sleeping in strange you know, Was sleeping... it just you solo? No, no. Okay. I had a boyfriend. Okay. I was smart enough to know that... Okay. Um, Many terrible things could be uh, prevented if you traveled with a male rather very, than other females. Very true, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was really um, so glad I did it. I'm so glad that neither of my daughters did it. <laughs> um, but I knew that I needed to be, I knew I needed to find a community of artists. I mm-hmm. knew that I needed to go somewhere. So New York, um, I had lots of friends there. So I just moved there finally when I was about uh, 23. Okay. I finally got to New York. And so it's like the mid-70s? Yeah. And what was that like when you got there? It's so funny. I was talking to someone today because I lived in Soho, and I, I moved into a loft that's really heart of Soho. But it was terrifying. It was dark. Yeah. And um, I would go... So I lived on Broadway between Prince and Spring, and I would go to visit friends at Broadway and 10th Street. And my boyfriend and I would clutch onto each other walking from Broadway and Prince to Broadway and 10th because it was dark and terrifying. Yeah. This was before Tower Records. Yeah. You may not even remember Tower. Oh, I definitely do remember Tower Records. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, My It was across the street from my favorite record store that just closed last oh, week, Other I'm Music. Oh, sorry. Yes, Which was like, has been there for like 20-something years. Yeah, those think. kind of music stores. We had one in the town I grew up in where people really guide you. Mm-hmm. It's such you a... You need that. I know, but it's such a relic. It's such a, I know. Well, there's the internet now, but, yeah, but the, you lose I'm, something with that. I'm talking about the older person who's guiding you in the store. <laughs> yes, who's like, who knows everything. Who's mm-hmm. like, this is bullshit. This is going to be gone. Just check this out. This well, is what Im- you really want. It's impossible to know everything now. I know. 
Well, you know, also I spent a lot of time at the local video rental store growing up, you know, and like yeah. same kind of thing where like, you know, he would just, they had like three movies for three days for $3. Like it was a damn good deal. Yeah. You know, that's amazing Got to, to see everything too. And then, um, but yeah, so, okay. Yeah. So you were, so you're, so you're in Soho. Did you ever see that movie after hours, that Martin Scorsese movie? Was it kind of like that? Or is that like you more know, of a jokey kind of like? As much as the new show Vinyl was like New York in the 70s, which is kind of not. Yeah. Kind of really not. It's a hard thing for people to capture on film, huh? Yeah, it's really hard. I'm trying to think. I wish I had, I wish I had the name of a film that, that felt um, really real to me about that period of time. But well, there was like Downtown 81. Haven't seen it. Oh, okay. So that was a film that was shot in 81. In that was downtown? Lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it follows like so a Basquiat. You know, as he's like going around mm-hmm. the city, like trying to sell a painting. And like, you know, all these bands are in it. He goes to all these different spots. All these like people are in it. And it was lost. I think in like the mid 2000s or early 2000s, they found the print and they like redubbed all the audio because all the audio tracks were lost. So it's more like. It's it was more, more of a, of a document, doc. yeah. documentary, yeah. yeah. You know, it's just like, you know, Lower East Side's all burnt out, everything. Right, so. right. Yeah. So when you were here, were you getting exposed to things that were, that were like, blowing your mind or yeah. changing your point of view? And totally. Like, like what? Every day. Um, I mean, one of the beautiful things about New York are that, that you can go into these um, really small rooms and, you know, back then, these very tiny events, and you realize, there's Taylor Mead, there's mm-hmm. John Cage, there's... Mm-hmm. Robert Rauschenberg, there's Trisha Brown, there's, I mean, the list would just keep going and going. You could see a dance performance that there's no record of, or there's Laurie Anderson playing a violin with, you know, there are five other people in the room. And these, like, amazing poetry readings, conceptual art performances and things that, um, there was just so much access. And... Speaking of galleries, I, I figured out that I could go into Light Gallery and ask uh, people to open drawers and show me photographs of, by photographers that I was really interested in. Oh, wow. Uh, Gary Winogrand or Stephen Shore or Jan Groover. Or, it's, it was sort of incredible when you realized what, what was available when you were like a young, you know, art, former art student who just got into New York. And it, it was so intense that it was hard to make art because everything's kind of coming in at yeah, you. Yeah, right. But that's okay. Yeah. I think it's important. I remember seeing a psychic around that time, like a, a medium, like a psychic mm-hmm. medium up in the Ansonia Hotel. And she said three things that I remember. She said, stop, look, and listen. It's very important that you stop, look, and listen, which sounds very cliche, but it seemed like a really good piece of advice. Mm. And then she said... Join the camera club. And I thought, now that's a really weird piece of advice. I'd yeah. never picked up a, really picked up a camera. And I, the camera club was a place that men gathered really to take pictures of naked women. I thought. Yeah, it was like kind of like, like, a, like the cheesecake photography Yeah, I thought, thing. Mm, that doesn't yeah. sound like. But then I did actually end up picking up a camera. And then she said, and remember, Picasso had a good agent. And I thought, Picasso didn't have a good agent. But she was probably making reference to an art dealer yeah <laughs> so yeah. i thought well that was three really weird That's pieces very of, helpful yes yeah very helpful so when you so when you started working with camera like what what was the thing was there a moment where things oh fucking this is gonna sound so stupid but was there a moment where things clicked that's 
really sweet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, because... It should be, like, embroidered on, like... Yeah, a, <laughs> things clicked for things me. Things really clicked. <laughs> well, I think that, um, you know, I was looking at... So this is, like... I'm going to say it's, like, 1974. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking at a lot of conceptual art. I was looking at a lot of fashion. I was going to a lot of performances. And I realized that the camera was being used in a different way than all of the photos that I was seeing at the Museum of Modern Art, which were all black and white photos um, taken by men who were out in the streets with their camera. So it was like a moment when a number of people realized that you could use a camera as a tool to make art. Mm. That I never really thought of myself as a, air quote, photographer. Right. And I still feel uncomfortable if I see a description of myself. If it says photographer and filmmaker, I'm okay. But I really think of myself as an artist. Yeah. An artist who uses a camera. Um, And I've always felt, of course, the worlds of art and photography have collided so much, but the photo photo world is never a place where I felt completely at home Mm -hmm. or completely conversant. Yeah. Well, then, I mean, like, so, like, I guess, like, some people consider you, like, a part of, like, the pictures generation. Mm -hmm. Is that a label that you um like feels apt or is like is that something that you think people just need to create these things that weren't there just to fit things in a box well i don't like the label but there were a bunch of people who used a camera and i feel like um all of the artists in the pictures generation are really different you know they're kind of different from each other yeah and i feel really different from them i feel really like an artist apart but maybe that's what we need to do because it's not in the nature of an artist to want to really feel like part of a group. Right. I mean, you have to keep yourself separate. Yeah. It's not... to be sovereign nation. Yes, to be sovereign nation. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, unless you're actively collaborating with someone, right. it's just... it Of all the things you have to do to be an artist and maintain that identity, you also have to keep telling yourself how you're different. Right. Especially during periods of time when no one's paying any attention to you or you feel like you can't, you're not being seen or heard. You have to really maintain that idea that you're different. Mm-hmm. So what, wh- you know, so you were in, you got to New York like 74 and you had your first solo show in 79. So you those your homework. <laughs> it, and you know, you know how old I am. So this podcast is going to go on till like next Tuesday. No, no, this is great. <laughs> we're <It's> getting, just... <laughs> we're starting me, this, this story like, way back. This is like, you're like, you know, like, so every once in a while, like, they'll be like, oh, who do you want to interview? And I send like a dream list to them and you were on it. So oh. like, I was like, I was oh, like great. so glad that you were. Well, uh, I was very excited yeah. to get the invitation. <laughs> so, no, we're going to get into it. Like, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it and I can be here forever, but we're, we finally got to. 1979. I know. I know. I'm not rushing you. I'm not rushing you. No, but I'm just, you know, because that's the thing. Because I think about when I first moved to New York and then when I first made something where I was like, okay, I feel confident that this is what I do, you know? Your grown up work. Yeah. And you know it. Yeah. You do know it. That's yeah. amazing that. Yeah. I'm mean, looking back on it. I didn't know yeah. it at the time, but looking back on it, I can be like, oh, that makes sense. I. It's you know? amazing. I have a photo that I actually have nicknamed Patient One, which was, you know, <laughs> the name of the first AIDS patient. I know that's really horrible thing to call it but that you know they did identify who they thought was the first person right. who actually contracted AIDS and I I call this photograph patient one because I feel like it's the first photograph I've identified it of my grown-up work you're like this is yeah this is this is yeah. me this is what I'm doing yeah I mean in a museum show it wouldn't say patient one on the no label but I know the photograph yeah I know when everything changed what what what, what was it 
It's a toy sink. It's called Sink Ivy Wallpaper, and it's a toy sink in front of a piece of ivy wallpaper. It's very flat-footed, and it's just sitting there. It's black and white, mm -hmm. and there's water in the sink, but the sink is miniature, and the wallpaper is normal size, and there are just very sort of simplistic scale changes. Mm -hmm. But whatever happened, whatever magic occurred from just putting that sink in front of that wallpaper and framing it. Yeah. That was it. That's, and I feel like whatever path that photograph put me on, mm -hmm. no matter what, I can't get off that path. I'm right. still on it. Right. That's really beautiful. I'd like to thank Squarespace for sponsoring today's episode. If you don't know, Squarespace is a gift from the heavens because it is the easiest way to create a blog or a website. Last week, I was asking about dog sweaters, and a listener sent me a great website, and guess what? I bought one. That money could have been yours if you had just followed through on your hopes and dreams about running a successful dog sweater empire. But don't worry, it's not too late for you. All you have to do is go to Squarespace because they have made it painfully simple for you to create an e-commerce website and online store. You can power your business with the only platform that lets you create, manage, and brand your store in a beautiful way. You have no excuse not to do it because they have gone a step further with their new domain search so you can find the right domain name and renew it at the same rate every year. It's all there. What are you waiting for? Head to Squarespace and use the offer code OBOY at checkout for 10% off your first purchase. Okay, back to the show. Do you remember, like, uh, what were those moments like where you're like, okay, I'm ready, I want to, like, make a body of work and I want to show it to people? Like, what? how did you make that happen? Well, the, I started making that work, um, that, those first photos happened around 1976. And I don't know, I didn't have that consciousness that I'm ready to show mm -hmm. my work. In fact, I felt very private about it. Uh, and I really value those, those years. I mean, I wish that I could tell this to every young artist, but those years when nobody has their eye on you and you're free to work, those are like your best years. Mm -hmm. But how could they feel that way? Because you're right. usually broke. You're broke and you're like, please, will somebody notice me? And you're miserable. Yeah. You're wondering if you will ever be noticed. Yeah. But yet you're making your work and there are no eyes on you at all. Right. And you're, you have utter freedom. Mm -hmm. But it's so funny that it comes at a time when there's so much insecurity and all I did was worry about money and then right well yeah because it's a very scary thing you're like I need to keep a roof over my head and I would never ever take a job because I saw Leo Castelli on a show on Channel 13 and he said real artists never have jobs so I started d doing the most bizarre series of things to mm -hmm. make a living <laughs> which was like well, like what I mean there was no Craigslist at the time how are you finding these well through word of mouth yeah. but um you know jobs like working in a get backgammon shop when you don't know how to play backgammon <laughs> um I wouldn't tell this but Lena's discussed it so much you know meeting Japanese businessmen for drinks yeah but it's just drinks yeah <laughs> it's just drinks yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um babysitting a Bedlington terrier um, who had to go everywhere with me, you know, just like whatever the job, right. the job of the week, which I've come to realize is so much more stressful than having one job. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I kind of drew the, you know, I, I went to be interviewed for a job where you had to go have a catheter put in you every single day. Oh boy. I know. Didn't do that one, but yeah. <laughs> some friends 
sat me down for a reality check and yeah. said, we do not want you to take this job. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the list goes on and on, and now it sounds really funny, but the anxiety that accompanies being a young artist and trying to stay alive in New York, yeah. even at a time when New York was an easier place to stay alive. Sure. But, like, you know, were you, were you frustrated during that time? Did you ever feel this kind of, like, frustration when you were doing those kinds of things? And you're like, this is not what I should be doing. I need to be, like, making work. I need to be just focusing on that. I think I felt like the contrast to my, um, what I considered my cosseted middle-class upbringing, I mm. think that I need, I felt so strongly that I needed to have an interesting story to tell someday. Mm. Of course, it got way too interesting around that time and also there was something exciting and um scary and fun and you know there were boys to meet and right. friends to make and um walking around new york in the middle of the night in those years which i used to do frequently by myself which was, was just such like a, a terrible idea but you know i remember almost feeling like a superhero like i could dart in and out of alleyways and look around and know when to walk in the middle of the street i mean again I hope my daughters didn't do what I did, you know. <laughs> but so there was, you know, there was an, an element of excitement. But I think what I was really afraid of, and I used to ask myself this question all the time. It's like, would I know when to give up? Would I know when to kind of count my losses? Mm. Would I know if I really was a terrible artist? And how will I, that, that was much more of a burning question. How will I know if I'm any good? Mm. And I knew that you didn't need the world, the rest of the world, to really tell you if you were any good. But I was really worried that I wouldn't know and that I would be... It's so funny. It's so simplistic sounding now. But I was really worried that I would be a bad artist and everyone else would know it and I wouldn't. Except for, yeah, for the entire life. <laughs> Can you relate to this at all? No, I... I the, the thing that... The thing is, for me, is that I struggle with the most is... Uh, is any like because you make your you know for video stuff and you put it out on the internet and you're like is anybody watching this i mean you can see view counts and stuff like that or if you're really in a dark mood you can read comments you know i uh i just stay away you from try comments. to stay away from below the i call it below the lines so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like man like it's just you just the big thing i struggle with is like are people are, is this getting to people you know, and, and you know, I get emails from people time to time that kind of like, if you're through going through like a, um, going through like a dark time of self doubt, where it's just like, okay, the, this email is gonna get me through for the next, you know, x amount of time. You know what I mean? Well, everybody needs feedback. Everybody yeah. needs approbation. Everybody yeah. needs um, a reminder that they're not invisible. But you know, I mean, we just met. But I would say to you, you know, you're putting your work out on the internet. That's that's your decision. Are there other venues, other places, other ways that you can put work out that we yeah. might have, like what? Oh, having screenings when yeah. people are butts are in seats, like that's my Is favorite that thing the in the world. Thing? Yeah, it's my favorite thing in the world. You know, there's nothing better than that. Even if you're getting like a negative reaction, mm -hmm. still like you can feel yeah. the energy of people. I mean, that's you know? what I would think about what you do. And very soon, I'll going to be interviewing you, so watch out. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but. Um, you know, that you would have to, like, temper the um, the internet stuff, putting it out there that way with having humans in front of you for that kind of immediate feedback. Yeah. Well, just also, just to go back to a little bit, because this isn't about me. Oh, um, no? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, what were the things that were going through your mind? Like, what were the ideas and emotions and feelings that you wanted to express? 
Well, it's interesting because the first thing the first thing you said to me about my work is that my work has taken you to a lot of places. Yes. Yeah. And I thought you meant psychological no, places. No, no, I did I do mean that. But I meant also I mean I was yeah. like I'm, I was like I said that first. I was like, yeah. yes, I do mean like, you know, it's taking me places like with me experiencing it and like, you know, where my mind's going when I'm, you know, viewing it. But yeah, no, that I I, I do that's what I that's what I meant, but I also meant as well as traveling around the city. Well, that's that's kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to create these spaces that were completely... They weren't necessarily fantasy places. Mm-hmm. Um, although I feel like some of the things in my mind look like video games look now. I had such a strong idea of the way that I wanted things to look. But I wanted to create these alternative realities. And yeah. again, not you know not fantasy spaces with, you know avatars like people with blue skin and green hair just another place that didn't exist that touched a memory or thought or an emotion I needed to see places through the viewfinder that made me feel transported Mm. and I now think in hindsight that you know when I was younger like many people like many young artists and that I was dealing with a lot of negative feelings and a lot of sort of maybe not depression but dysthemia like Mm -hmm. low-level depression and I needed to literally be transported. I remember um, when I was in, I guess it was 1979 or 80, a very close friend died. And it was the first time I'd ever really experienced death. Mm. And the night after she died, um, I went roller skating at Roxy Roller Rink, something. And I thought, well, I don't know if I like that. The next night, I started tap dancing lessons. I mean, I was... I didn't understand that I was trying to um, deal with this extreme grief. Mm. I thought, okay, that's interesting. I took tap dancing for a while. But like two weeks later, I got an underwater camera and I went underwater and started shooting underwater these little worlds that I created and also made my friends go swimming with me. And I realized now in hindsight that every time I was underwater, I felt better. Mm. I felt relieved in some way from this terrible stress and this burden of losing this grief, this burden of losing this friend. So I think, again, in hindsight, that I was always creating places that I could go to sort of feel better or escape from the life that I was having. Right. I, I, I don't know. I, maybe I took this from, like, uh, from the R20, from R21, but, like, you know, you talk about, it's like the work's about capturing, like, these still and quiet moments, like, um, to contrast the chaos around you. And what, mm-hmm. Besides that, were there other things that you found chaotic around you? I think the life. Yeah. Um, the life in New York, mm-hmm. living in New York, which I found very exciting. Um, and I have, like, the opposite of agoraphobia, like, the opposite of fear of a crowd. I'm just so comfortable being... God bless you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> in the center of, like, a, you know, a throng in a marketplace. Um, maybe not so much lately. <laughs> but... Um, and also the chaos of the mind, you know, having yeah. all these ideas coming at you and all of these thoughts we have uh, when we're young, like being obsessed with this obsession with what are we going to do? Are we going to, you know, am I going to make a contribution in some way? It's, it's very frenetic when you want to, um, if you have an idea that you want to achieve something or accomplish something or make people listen to you. I mean, really, being any sort of artist or... Um, musician or writer is some form of mommy look mommy look look at me (laughs) mommy mommy yeah mommy yeah exactly look look (laughs) at me look at me doing this 
Well, you know, there's a bit like you know, I find that there's like a through line of like of humor in in your work too. And what what do you think informs that? Was that uh, is that is that something that you consciously wanted to do? No, and in fact, I used to get so annoyed at oh, the idea. Of, no, it's okay. Oh. <laughs> like Did I, I just... used to get really bristly if somebody brought up the idea of humor in the work, and I said, "No, it's not there. I have no intention." But I understand now. I understand that it's there, and it's been one of the threads. I mean, there are many threads all the way through, and. Now, instead of resenting it and feeling like it takes away from the seriousness of what I've tried to do, I understand it differently. I think of it as um, a part of my work that makes it more accessible and also is a little bit generous. Yeah. Like, humor is not a four-letter word. I, I think humor is the highest art. <laughs> well, a lot of, maybe a lot of younger artists have helped me with this. Yeah. And I think certainly... Real life, real, real, real life is really funny. Yeah. And I think that um, my daughter has really mined that in her TV show, the Mm -hmm. idea, like, she's not writing broad humor. Right. And I find her show really funny. But she's dealing with that same thing. You know, going through a day, so many funny things happen because they're so much funnier than what you see on a in a movie that's trying to right. hand you some like really broad humor. I, I completely. Like the other day I was walking down the street and there was a guy carrying a tambourine. Just carrying a tambourine. And I was like, that's so funny because this guy's been walking around all day and he's just been making noise all day. And I'm just like, this is the fucking funniest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it's you know? hilarious. And it's, just, it's, not, it's not broad. It's just like, you know, it's absurd. And it's, you know, and like... It's absurd. Know. Like I was... At the big shoe sale at Bergdorf's the other day, and I was in my shoe size, which is a size 10. Yeah. So I'm standing in front of the, all of these shoes, you know, 50% off, trying to decide. And this woman walks by and looks, and she says, these shoes look monstrous. They are huge. They're monstrous. And I thought, you know, I'm about to buy these shoes. Yeah. And I, I did not <laughs> ask for you to walk by and right, comment on right. the size of my feet. Yeah. It's but, all- you know, that's like... Larry David could really run oh, with that. I know. That's, you know, yeah, that's, now that's what I mean when you say comedy is, like, definitely a high form of art. I was watching his stuff. But, yeah, anyway, I mean, so I guess it was it was something that, uh, you know, you kind of, uh, you turned your, you turned your kind of, like, viewpoint of, like, how people were, affect, you know, were, you know, stuff that they were getting from the work. Like, if they were, you know, like, and, you know, humor to me, I equate with, like, joy and stuff, you know, like, I get, I remember, you know, watching, you know, the, you know, an act two of uh, Music of Regret, where, like, um, Meryl Streep's just, like, lying there on the ground, is like, this dummy. Hawaiian, and I'm just, like, I just, like, couldn't stop smiling, and I was just, like, uh, you know, so it was, like, when I say humor, I also mean joy at the same time, you know, it's, yeah. like, smiling rather than, like being like this is so serious this is so dire you know what i mean it's just like, yes. there's none there's you know what i mean i i had to i had to definitely open up to that idea because the the first time i screened the movie which was in at moma in mm-hmm. may of 2006 when the scene came up with meryl lying on the beach the hawaiian beach with the dummy people started laughing and i was sitting next to the composer who i'd written the lyrics and he'd written the music and i just clutched his arm and sunk into my seat and I, I felt like I was going to die and he said what's wrong and I said they're laughing Yeah. and um, he said 
go with it. They're you know? feeling joy. I mean, it's just beautiful. You know, it's touching. You know? But I think that there's, um, you know, I think that there's, I always think there's more sadness in my work and more pathos. And I think that humor and pathos are really right, right in bed together. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah, of course. And we know that there are very fine lines between all of these emotions. So I've grown up a little in the sense that I could accept anybody's reaction to mm-hmm. my work that they might have, even... I can accept that they might hate it. Right. Well, you know, in with that, like, how do you think your approach to making work has changed over time? I think that um, um, it's become harder for me to find subjects and things that really, like, I have to look harder mm. to make things and find things that really uh, s- stimulate me. I mean, once I find my subject, my approach is very formulaic it's like I can I can pretty much make a decent picture out of anything if if um, the objects and situations are sort of in within my sensibility Mm -hmm. I can make I could make fake Lori Simmons photos from now until the day I die I know what they are right I know when I'm in my work and when I'm not in my work and I need to be in it Mm -hmm. And I think that that means that the bar keeps getting raised about what will stimulate me. And I know when I'm making, like I said, a picture that's just in the style of other pictures that I've made. And I don't want to make that work. I'd rather make no work. Right. I know how to do that. And I think that that's what's um, kind of pushed me to try so many other things, like try that movie that was a musical and... um, you know, I write a lot now. I do other kinds of thi- projects mm-hmm. because I need, I need to feel like I'm out of my depth, and that's the reason. I know we haven't talked about it yet, but that's the reason that I made a feature film because I really needed to feel like I was wading into deeper water, and like I really, I needed to have that nervous feeling, like I was a neophyte or like I was. Right. A, uh, at the beginning of something, not at the end of something. Right, where like the, it's, it's almost like you know, there's like a fear of the unknown. Yeah, exactly. Like what's going to happen? Yeah, what's going to happen? It, it keeps you on your toes. It keeps, keeps you, you on your toes. Keeps your brain firing. You right. know, you're not. You, it's like releases cortisol. <laughs> it releases cortisol. It's the it's the opposite of autopilot. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's good. What um. Also, oh, this is one one other thing I want to talk. I know this is a little inside baseball, but like for talking objects. You went to the Vent Haven Museum. Mm-hmm. I've like always been obsessed with like ventriloquism. Really? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. Like I've always wanted to go there. Like, what was that like? Wow. So you are. Let me see. The uh, first person <laughs> I've ever met who said that to me. Really? Yes. Oh, I've always been. I. Th- it's so. It's just like. It's like they can be so funny, but like you know, ventriloquists are also star in lots of horror films. You know, like Were the you dummies. Born in nineteen fifty one or fifty two? No, no, no. But like, I just they're the best. I even like the dumbest. Like, like even like the dumbest, most base ventriloquists. Like, I'll still watch it, and like I still get it. It's like I still I have get to something tell you. from it. You know? Many interviews, many years later, I've never encountered a person who was obsessed with ventriloquism. So, and I mean, there's people. There's this great woman from Australia. She does all. She does this thing where she like pulls people out of the audience and has them put on these masks. Wow! And she like has these little buttons where she makes them talk to each other. It's crazy. That's something I'd like to see. If yeah, I'll, I'll show it to you after. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. It's so good. But uh, yeah, like well, I've always, always, always wanted to go to that place. I know it's like appointment only. Like no, it's it's so it's it's um 
a plywood building on the back of someone's property. I love it it's even more. so funky. Oh, that's amazing. And, and it's just uh, all these ventriloquist it's dummies. It's just classrooms full of dummies. It is the easiest place to go to. Oh, yeah. It is um, not intimidating like an art gallery. How did you find out about that place? Um, a bunch of people uh, sent me articles um, because they would have a parade every year. And um, people knew that I was getting interested in... Um, there were just a couple of little articles and little magazines. And yeah. then I just called and made an appointment to go. And I... I went there three times, and interestingly, I went there the first time uh, right after our first daughter was born. So I'm really a, a big believer in, you know, uh, life imitates art. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and art imitates life. Yeah. Both. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was, at the same time that I was handling this kind of newborn baby, I would go to Venthaven and handle these little ventriloquist dummies, and I thought, something feels so familiar about yeah. this. <laughs> but they're very, um, they were very compelling, and I think that they came at a time when I was really understanding, um, I was really starting to develop my adult uh, comprehension of politics mm-hmm. and the idea of truth and lying and what newscasters were telling us and what politicians were telling us. Right. And so the metaphor, the whole concept, the idea that people would speak their minds through another person or through this object, mm. like imbue this object. Get away with, with it, intellect not deal and, with any yeah. of the, yeah. Because often the, the dummy was an alter ego for the ventriloquist and the dummy could say horrible, nasty things that the ventriloquist did not have to take responsibility for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. The... Uh... <laughs> No, it's very true. I never thought about it like that. Um, well, you know, you mentioned it a second ago. You know, you're just finishing up a three-year-long project. Five. Uh, it's a five-year-long five project. <laughs> it's called My Art. And mm-hmm. how are you feeling about it right now? How are you feeling about it today? Today, I'm feeling like... it'll be different tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, every day is different. Um, t- tonight, I'm actually... I mean, the film is basically complete, but there mm-hmm. are these tiny little edits that are being finished tonight the titles are being finished tomorrow there's a final sound edit um within a week or two the color's been done but you know i'm feeling like it's hard like you you're so driven to finish these projects right and then in the end it's kind of hard to let them go oh it's you know i'm not trying to take away from like actual postpartum depression but like from what that experience is like but i feel like it's something akin to that because it's your, that's been your, you know, that's, you've been living, sleeping, eating, and breathing that for so long, and then it's done, and then you're like, well, now, now what, do what? I, now what? Now I have to find out what, how people feel about it, yeah. or if people want to even see it, but, you know, the, the thing that you would know, that you would agree with, is that, um, and the thing that I love about making a film is it has so many lives, like, the life of the script yeah. is one life. Right. I'm probably saying things that are so obvious no, to no, filmmakers. No. They're yawning. No, 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 no. It's important to hear. It's important but, to hear. But it's so true that the life of the script is so different than the life of the movie. Um, the realization of the script is like, what? What was that thing that we called the script? Right. And, and then, um, you know, your life during shooting when you're the bulletproof director who, you know, you have to, nothing can harm you. You're I like, know. And, and also you're in this as well. Yeah. Was that your first time kind of being on both sides of it like that? Yes. Did you find that hard? Because, like, to me, I, I can't deal. I couldn't deal with that. Like, I just find it so difficult. I need to be seeing what's going on. I, you know, like, to just 
switch and just it's it's What's very hard for me i know some people you know uh you know your your daughter is she seems to be very talented to do at doing it you know like people well, can I, do it i think for me it felt more like well that's one less person i have to direct <laughs> i thought i was so you know i'm so worried about directing actors and all the actors are my friends and people that i know but really excellent actors and i yeah. thought sometimes i would think god at least i don't have to direct the female lead of this movie right but then, but do you, but do you, are you able to take yourself out of it and watch yourself? Like, are you acting and then going back around and watching playback and then like... I am. I mean, there were times my, my shoot was so rushed and everyone, you know, the, um, I tried to be the director, but there were times when I said, guys, can I see playback? They, no, we have to continue. <laughs> and I, you know, people were so on the path of like getting, you know, finishing the day right. that there were times when I didn't even get to see playback and I'd have to just you like... You have to trust... Yeah, or insist. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I know Ellie. I know the character. I wrote mm-hmm. her. I know her. And I kind of felt like, well, whatever Ellie did that day is well, That's what who Ellie is. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what was the most surprising thing that you encountered while you were making it? God, there were so many surprising things. But I think that... Um, I think the most surprising thing was that every day I would get up and I would uh, take the sides, you know, the pages mm-hmm. of the script that... We were going to shoot that day, and before before anyone arrived at set, before anything happened, I would go through it and change it so much. So each day that we shot informed the day that came after. And, um, you know, I know that people laugh at the movie, but what I kept scratching out was anything that even approached broad humor. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think I wrote it, I think I wrote it maybe funny, and then it ended up being... Much leaning much more t- towards sad, mm. which is pretty much the way the rest of my work is. Yeah. Well, 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 how are you able to keep pushing through? I mean, it took five years for you to make. Well, it was a side, it was a, you know, it was like if my work is my work, then the movie was my mistress. Mm. Terrible word, but it was like I had to finish everything because I was so excited to work on the script. Right. Like it was the thing that my mind went to. It was almost like... Um, for some people, if you, you have your work and then you have this hobby, right? you cannot wait to go. Um, you've got to get to the driving range and drive golf balls or mm-hmm. you need to go to your knitting group or you want to practice your saxophone. I don't know, right. whatever the thing right. is. The movie was always there as this thing, this dream of mine. You know, and I, meanwhile, I was making all my other work and doing everything I had to do, but I just, like, I had to keep working on it. Yeah. So are you going to send it to festivals? And like, It's out right now. Oh, it is? Oh, awesome. Hell yeah. It's, it's, it's out, like, it, like I can go see it. No, no. It's out waiting to find out. Oh, it's out. Oh, okay, the festival game. So it's a fun game. It's a conversation we don't want to have. <laughs> oh, man. But... I mean, are you are you looking forward to like it be you know you know experiencing it in theaters or you know as opposed to a gallery where sometimes it, somebody comes in and they're like they come in halfway through and like you know not every video piece you go see is always linear so you sometimes you can come in at different times but like for something like this I would imagine it's a story it's, it's a, story, a narrative yeah. feature it really um, people can watch it on TV people can see it in a theater. But the hope is that you see it from the beginning to the end. There's nothing art piece about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it. there are some weird things about it, but it really does tell a story. It really does have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I mean, we need more of that in, like, modern filmmaking. Everything's gotten too well, straight. Well, 
You must really believe in movies. Oh, 110%. Me too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard with so much great television. A no. lot of people are losing interest and faith and hope in you movies. Know, okay, but I see something like, uh, for example, did you see The Lobster yet? I haven't seen it. I saw Dogtooth. Okay, Dogtooth's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so when I was in The Lobster and it was like, I was in a packed theater on a Monday night at like 1030. And I'm like, okay, like there's like, you know, people do want to see things mm-hmm. that like push it that are original, that are new, that are exciting. Like, there are people that want that. People will leave their house for it. You know, it exists. And I think that, obviously, developing a character over the course or the arc of a TV show where you have 10 to 15 episodes, and you can do something really extraordinary. But, you know, I've just had a few small screenings, um, and the reactions have been really surprising and really positive. But the idea that you can create an entire world in 80-something minutes mm-hmm. that people might be sad to leave. Right. That, that's movie magic. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, and, and don't get me wrong. I don't think it's TV or film. I mean, TV and film, they're both, you know, great. But, you know, I mean, think about, like, The Godfather. The Godfather was, like, the first, like, episodic TV show. It's so you know? true. Yeah. Like, the, fir- the Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 is, like, six episodes of a miniseries. That's so true. You know? Yeah, totally true. Even in the film, I think there's breaks even. You know what I mean? You yeah. could just edit those into episodes. Right. It's you so know? true. It would so be it's like, it's, it, they're, they're all the same. But there's something magical about just being in a... I'm not, and again, I'm not saying anything you've never heard before either. There's something about being in a dark room with a group of strangers, just having this shared experience. There's an energy in there that's different than watching something on your laptop, watching something on your couch. Totally you know true. I mean? I mean, the first movie that I made, I showed it, um, The Music of Regret, I showed it at in probably more in museum theaters and went mm-hmm. to some festivals but it was you know hovering somewhere between an art movie and a movie movie it was too long to be a short uh, yep. too short to be a uh, long yep. and everything wrong yeah but i never um left the theater during a sc- screening to the mm-hmm. point where i could breathe along with the audience i yeah. knew when they would laugh i knew when they would make a comment like oh and i even knew there was one point where some people cried and i even would always look around at the point where people um, cried, and I thought, God damn, puppets made people cry. Yeah. <laughs> and I would get excited every time. Yeah. yeah that's cool. Also, one of my favorites, uh, Barbara Sakawa. Oh, she's so great. She's in the film. She's in the film. She's the best. Yeah, she's, she's so great. great. She sings a beautiful song. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. I can't wait to check it out. Are you a Parker Posey person? I do like Parker Posey a lot. Yes, of course. Yeah. She kind of flies in and out of the film as well yeah well she's great i've been re i've been like studying uh waiting for guffman lately a lot for this thing that i'm doing oh really and yeah and just like she's just she's just pitch perfect and everything man so yeah that's cool yeah the cast looks really awesome and then lena's in it too lena has a lena's like uh in and out in the beginning and uh, somebody told me that um that Alfred Hitchcock thought you needed to get your cameos over right at the beginning. <laughs> so she's in, she's out. That's good. I uh, I saw some stills for it, and I loved the the stuff, the like the Clockwork Orange. Yeah, that's what you did. I saw that movie. Like I was th- I was sick. I was like eleven years old, and I was sick home from school. My mom rented that for that's, me. That's that's a good choice, and mom. And it's just like burned into my brain. Yeah. I just. I, I love that that movie so much, yeah. But the imagery from that, I always get excited to see. Well, it. the character in the movie, whose name is Ellie, the character that I play is um, 
going away for the summer to try to step up her game and she's an artist and maybe things haven't been going so well or she hasn't been super productive so she's trying to she's actively trying to have a breakthrough in her work mm -hmm. and she arrives at a place where she's um recreating scenes from her favorite movies right and she's finding a little band of people to work on it with her but of course you know she's recreating a movie with kim novak who was in her 20s when she did picnic and all of the characters in Ellie's movie are in their 60s. Yeah. So the movie is a lot about being an artist, a lot about being a woman, and also a lot about aging, mm. which is a subject that I'm very um, sensitive to and sensitive about because I feel like it's not depicted appropriately. Mm -hmm. And I think that the whole movie came out of this idea that um, I just felt like people were not, people who were making movies were not understanding what a woman in her 60s really is like. She's right. either portrayed as a as kind of a simpering child, like you somehow you reach childhood again, right? or somebody um, senile and on the verge of death. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. people aren't finding the right um, tone. Mm -hmm. And I thought, and also artists, by the way, are not represented too accurately on film. Mm. Artists sit around and laugh about representations of artists in movies, they thought. What'd you think of that one? Ha ha. What'd you think of what'd you think of Pollock? What'd you think right. of Basquiat? What'd right. you think of We're always talking about how, you know, our group, if I can call it that, how artists are actually represented on screen. Right. Julianne Moore and Big Lebowski. <laughs> that's what it's right. That's that's what it's like. That's what you're saying, right? No. <laughs> that's funny. What's uh so what are the things that you find frustrating? In my life? About just trying to be, you know, like, being a professional artist. Well, I find, I still find, you know, it's hard now because the world is so scary and frustrating. Yeah. So whenever I think about my problems or the problems in the art world, they seem so privileged compared mm -hmm. to, I mean, the summer so far. Oh, yeah. my God. But I'm still frustrated, you know, the statistics... Uh, for the way women are dealt with in the art world are really out there. They're very, they're very well publicized. The percentage of women in museum collections, mm -hmm. the percentage of women that are represented in the Whitney Biennial, the percentage of women that are in galleries, right. women, people of color. You know, all of all of the facts are out there for everyone to see. Uh, just like in the entertainment industry, that's all been kind of broken wide open. The disparity of prices at auction of men's work and women's work so that it just hasn't improved mm. to the degree that people expect it there's so much work to do right but you know it's just it's not just in the art world right it's, it's every 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 facet yeah 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 so you know that is still really frustrating mm -hmm. I can't even believe it's a subject in fact it's kind of crazy yeah it's ridiculous. It's absurd. Yeah. <laughs> but and then it's like, but okay, and then so, but everybody feels that, but then what do we do to take that one step further? Like, what do we do to, we can all acknowledge that it's ridiculous, but like, you know, that's something that I've, you know, like I sometimes feel, you know, it's been very helpful, like, I know it sounds stupid, but like, you know, in the past couple of weeks, like people putting up articles, like, if you're a white person, like, what can you do to help this situation? Exactly. You know, and like, it's not anybody's job to explain it to me, but it's like, sometimes those things are really helpful or even just get your mind thinking in the places like where it needs to go. Well, know? every, 
I mean, not everybody, but some of the people that we know want to figure out what to do to change things. And there's not always a clear path. Right. That's why you Google, how can I change things or something? And, you know, it's true. I I know what you're saying. You're saying, well, if everybody knows the facts in the art world, what can we do to change them? You know, a, a consciousness about it, sadly, brings a burst of activity where things might change. There might be one show, a show of women's art that gets a huge viewing audience coming in. The museum's doing really well this month with this woman's show. Yeah. Um, but then it's but then everybody feels like they've solved the problem with an ex, you know with fill in the blank an exhibition right. or this right, or that. Right, right. So, I guess you know the thing too is like I think about like when I make an approach to like writing story or something like that. I just I try to keep that kind of stuff in mind because I think the more that people write things that are that you know kind of like fight against that even in subtle ways like the, I agree the better it is I you know what I mean completely agree like that's something I know I can do you know in the way that I cast people or the way that I would cast a project you know like exactly. the makeup or the kinds of stories that I want to write because like I feel like I've seen so many stories that I'm just like this thing's been done to death like I'm tired of this shit you know I completely agree and and the the frustrating things for, for the frustrating thing for people that do feel like they're activists in their heart like I can obviously you do and I do is that in the movie I made I just thought well if I can get people interested in watching a movie not only about a woman protagonist mm-hmm. but also about people in their 60s right okay I'm I'm dealing with sexism and ageism and I'm very conscious of ageism now I'm very conscious of it and of course you have to kind of get there to really understand it but then I'll walk around thinking, well, I didn't deal with racism and anti-Semitism. Yeah. And I, I'm like, calm down. Yeah, 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 yeah. You'll make another movie. Yeah. You'll find, you'll, that's the thing. Nobody can solve everything or get every issue into one of course, project. Of course. And, 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 and you shouldn't, you know, like, to try and do that, you would make a mess of something. Whereas, like, if you can just focus on one thing at a time, you can put your power yeah. towards, you know just like you know trying to sway one thing exactly and in a in a, in a, in a you know do and do it well rather than try and sway a million things and just miss completely just whiff exactly you know? exactly super well put yeah and i mean i think in my case the, the idea that i could accurately portray a woman in her 60s and not portray her as um less than or mm. or a baby or an oddity or just a a kind of accurate portrayal of, of, of someone who you could respect, mm-hmm. that that's almost a political act in itself right. because of the representation of women my age right. in Hollywood, which is frustrating. It's really frustrating. It is. It is because there are so many, there's the, yeah, there's just like so much great talent that's just like sitting on the benches. Exactly. And it's like, we want to see, I want to see stories. Like I, you know, I grew up in, like, the 90s watching, like, every great, like, independent... Like, there was so much great independent film in the 90s. Right. And, like, so many original stories, original characters, just everything was all over the place. And, like, and just I just don't see it as much now anymore. And it hurts. Well, it's all economics and commerce. Of course it is. Yeah. That's why if you can, if you can make... I mean, thank God for digital everything. Right. Because if you can make a film, if you can make the film that you really believe in, that you really want to make... That's really an accomplishment. It is. And, you know, the fact that um, you can, um, you know, the thing about, again, my daughter's film, Tiny Furniture, Mm -hmm. I know how much it costs to make that film. 
Um, it costs less than it would cost you to buy a used car. Yeah. A good car. Yeah. And I know, you know, it was shot on the Canon 7D, and I think, you know, one of the first ones maybe mm-hmm. that got out there that was shot on the 7D. So, it's amazing what now what you can do, like how little you act. I mean, you need money. Don't get me wrong. You but need the, but that's, yeah, you need like some money, but it's like you know, but it's also kind of exciting to see like when you have those restrictions, how do you come out swinging? Well. It's, I'm so glad you brought that up because I have a really strong belief in restrictions yeah. and that um, I've always created work where the, that, you know, there were always inherent limitations in the way I did everything. Like these little objects are going to fall over, so tape them up. Like it's almost like every set I ever built was designed to, to fail or mm-hmm. fall and it was just there in a song and a prayer and I think it's that's the only way it, it stood up. I mean, it was like fragile. Yeah. And I feel like that's what's the fact that I never had all the money in the world to realize my dreams. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with the movie that both movies that I made that I just couldn't make them the way someone could do something in Hollywood, that that's what gives them their, their edge, their yeah. beauty, their sensitivity. Yeah. If any of those things are there, their fragility, um, and their strength. Right. Yeah. I don't know what I would do if somebody suddenly gave me all the money in the world to make things. Well, that's why I look at, like, you know, this. I, you see it all the time, right? Like, look at, like, a movie like Easy Rider. Easy Rider was made for nothing. It came out, like, it was this great movie. Like, and then, like, the next thing they give Dennis Hopper, they're like, here's a million dollars. And he comes back with, like, The Last Movie. Have you ever seen that? The movie that he made right after Easy Rider? What was it called? It was called The Last Movie. Oh, The Last Movie. Yeah. I re- no, I don't remember. It was it. in I theater for, like, it, yeah. a day. I, they pulled yeah. it after a day. Yeah. Like, you know, like, there was, like, a, like, he, like, gave all the footage to, like, Alejandro Jodorowsky at one yeah. point. He's like, you make a cut. And, like, it was just, but it's just, like, having all the money is not the best. It screws you up. It I mean, does. I think... Hodorowsky's Dune, that documentary, which yeah. I saw three times, was so inspiring because it was around, I saw it around the time when I didn't know if I would get to make my movie. And my mm. movie was, I was, it was my obsession. And I thought, so what would life be like if I can't make the movie? Right. And that movie is about an artist who's really dealing with not being able to realize his dream right. and having to go on. I think it's one of the most beautiful movies about an artist that I've ever seen. It really is incredible. It's just like, yeah, I remember seeing that in the theater and just being floored by that whole story. And almost in a way, it was, I really loved how, even if he would have made that, I was so much happier to have the documentary in a way because like, you, everybody who's viewing it gets to see it in their head. The whole process. Exactly. I love, there were so many things I loved. I loved when he went to see, um, the move, you know, the Dune that did get released. Um, was it who made that? David, David Lynch? Lynch. David Lynch's yeah. Dune, and he went with his sons, and they were kind of supporting him on either side. And he left the movie after seeing David Lynch's Dune, the Dune he yeah. couldn't make. And they said, "How do you feel?" And he said, "I feel great. Yeah. It was terrible." <laughs> and that's something that every artist, filmmaker, can relate yeah, to. Just like the sheer happiness you feel. A huge bullet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He couldn't do it either. He didn't get it right. Um, I have like two more questions. Sure. Um, And this one's a little little more serious. And I ask it just because it's something I'm starting to think about. You know, like I'm I'm getting married and like, you know, like I want to have like a family and stuff. And so I've been thinking a lot about like the choices that I have to make 
in terms of my work or the choices that I have to make in terms of like keeping like food on my potential child's plate, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, and um, so like being an artist and a parent at the same time, was there ever a point where you had to sacrifice one thing for the other? Yeah, but it doesn't feel like that. But first mm-hmm. of all, let me say that I'm really thrilled to hear a father, a future father asking the question, <laughs> not a mother artist, because well, <laughs> um, the, you know, at least you have the awareness. And I was exactly your age when I got married, so yeah. I really, really relate to where you're at. But, you know, historically, so much of those concerns became the mother's concern. Right. Well, that you know, that's not the time I want to live in. Yeah. You know so, I mean? but it's so great that you're thinking about it. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the choices you have to make, I think that they're all for the good of the person and the good of the work. And one of the really, one of the really sort of nice things that happened um, being an artist uh, for, for both my husband, you know, who's an artist, and mm-hmm. myself, is that we wanted to watch Star Trek at 12 o'clock at night and then go into the, you know, then go into the studio and work until seven in the morning and then sleep really late and then figure out, you know, he'd go off to a job. And we, we had, like, our schedule was no schedule. We right. worked, but we worked whenever we wanted. Right. And suddenly, having a kid or having kids, we were put on a schedule. Right. And at first, I thought, I'm going to die from this. Yeah. <laughs> it's so anathema to, you know, my whole life, the yeah. way I've lived it. But it turned out to be a really amazing thing to be able to know that the time that you had to work was so precious to prioritize work and know sometimes no I'd be really around. yeah sometimes yeah. I'd be really blue when the weekend would come because I thought the weekend's coming it has to be kid time because right. they're not in playgroup or school and right. this has to be family kid time but it made those moments in the studio those moments working even more precious and more mm. valuable and that's something I've talked about with a lot of artists that's awesome um, that's good to hear yeah you know, you'll figure it out. Okay. <laughs> it's really Cause, not a... Because sometimes, I'm, you know, I'll take on a project. I'll be like, man, if I had a kid to, like, take care of right now, like, I would I take this on? You know, I don't know. I, but that's, that's, you know, I mean, I'm, think, I'm overthinking well, it. Well, it's... Everybody overthinks it. And I can't even tell you in this day and age how many young women of ours have come to me and asked me if I think it's okay for them to have children. Mm. That there's still kind of a prejudice towards... I mean, what's up with our world? I always say, Margaret Thatcher has a child. Hillary Clinton has a child. Yeah. Meryl Streep has four children. Yeah. I could go on and on. Right. Sheryl Sandberg. Yeah. I mean, all over the place. And yet, young women artists feel that some aspect of their creativity might be in jeopardy. I mean, recently, um, a young artist, actually not that young woman in her late 30s, had a baby and she told me that her art dealer gave her a lot of attitude about having this child and telling her that she thought it would be really um, negative, a negative in terms of her career. And I just go crazy. Yeah. I just can't that's, believe that this could still be the conversation. That's a bummer. That's like, that's awful. So any young women artists listening, mm-hmm. go have babies. Yeah. Just <laughs> be great artists. Just, just live through. your life. And yeah. still, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. So uh, what's next for you? Well, I'm just starting work on, um, I guess, what we call a museum retrospective that's originating in Fort Worth at the Modern, which is a great museum. Yeah. I have a great curator I'm working with. So that's just, 
that's just beginning to happen, but um, that means like gathering work and trying to understand what aspects of this very long time of art making that we want to focus oh, on. Man. So like just like re going through all the emotions yeah. of everything. Yeah, of that's just like, like a big look back. But really, the movie is still it's in my brain, and that whole thing of like getting it from being this edited thing out into the world yeah. and having people see it because that's the next phase. Right. I can't wait. I can't wait to see it. I'm so excited. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited for you to see it. Yeah. Lori Simmons, thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure.